We have hit the fall season, and this is Labor Day weekend. Of course, we have so much happening uh, coming up in the weeks ahead, and so there's much to think about. We're jumping back into Luke this morning. Tonight we have the convocation service, uh, and we will um, pray for and uh, commend our students to the grace of God as they prepare for another year of study, and, uh, and the congregation comes around them at each campus, but particularly our own campus tonight as we celebrate what God is doing in that great ministry. For this morning, let's return to our study of the Gospel of Luke. I know that some of you have said to me, hey, we've been holding off and we're just ready for Jesus to have uh, begun now the ministry after the section on his temptation, and it was a wonderful study of the Lord's power. It was a wonderful study of his dedication. It was a wonderful study of his commitment to his Father's purpose. It was a wonderful study of his perfections and his uh, knowledge of the Word of God, his strategic use of it against temptation. It was also a wonderful study of the humanity of Christ and how he really was faithful for his people. Because had he failed in his temptation, as you know, we'd have no reconciliation with God for our own lives. And so what a thrill it was to study that. We come now to Luke chapter 4, and we'll study this morning, verse 14 through verse 30. This, of course, is that great section where Jesus is in Nazareth, and he is going to his own hometown and into a worship service at the synagogue. Let me just say at the outset that the core issue in this wonderful narrative, and the reason Luke includes it here in such detail is because he is going to be making the point that we ought not to miss, and that is that it is utterly foolish to try to somehow, in human ways, remove the offense of the gospel. People today try to foolishly imagine that they can remove or soften the offense of the gospel. But if you were to try to remove the offense of the gospel, you might as well try to remove Christ from the center of the gospel. Because he is the issue in the gospel, and until a heart acknowledges him, there will be offense. Hard offense. You cannot get around it. You can't remove the alienation the gospel causes, because man's heart is alienated from God intrinsically, by nature. There's nothing I can do humanly to remove that intrinsic alienation. Therefore, I can't do anything humanly to remove the offense. And since Christ is the gospel, and at the center of it, as we'll see in this narrative, there's no way for us to soften the polarization that the gospel creates and exposes. When the gospel is presented, when Christ at the center of the gospel is exalted, when his message and his person are said to be the only way, there's no way that you're going to get around exposing what the gospel does. It offends. It's interesting that in Matthew 10, verse 34, Jesus said, Do not think that I came to bring peace 
into the world, but I came to bring a sword. That's very interesting. It's a hard and difficult saying because there are plenty of other places where we know the purpose of his coming was to die for sinners and to offer sinners real peace, spiritual peace. So what in the world does he mean in Matthew 10 when he says, don't think... When he says it to his disciples, don't imagine that I came to bring peace but a sword. He's not talking there about his purpose for coming. He's talking about the effects of it. You can't get around it. His purpose, no doubt, is to die for sinners. His purpose was to pay for their sin and offer real peace to the sinner's burdened and sin-bound heart. But the effect is such that many will be offended. Many will be offended. That's what you have here in this text. Jesus is not on the earth in his first coming so that he might shred relationships, tear up people's lives. He's not saying that instead of mercy and forgiveness, he was bringing war. The day of vengeance of our God will come. Christ will have his day of justice against those who don't believe him. But in his first coming, he came to heal the spiritual disease and bring joy to people's misery. The problem, of course, is that some people do not think they need help. In fact, look at Luke 5, verse 31. Luke 5, verse 31 Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. Those who are sick. You must know you're sick if you are not going to be offended at Christ. Look over at chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, verse 23. Notice what Jesus says in this great sermon. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Blessed is the... Sinner who does not take offense at Christ. That is the issue. His person and his message have the effect of a sword because when he offers mercy and forgiveness, it exposes hearts. It it draws that clear line between the humble and the proud. And spiritual healing comes to those who confess that they need a physician. And that he is the only physician for their need. And when Jesus came to his own hometown, his very first sermon in his hometown was both profound, it caused great wonder, and it was polarizing. Now, back to Luke 4. You need to understand that the news about Jesus at this point was already spreading everywhere because, and you don't see it in Luke's gospel, You only see it in John's gospel because there were about 18 months of ministry prior to him arriving in Nazareth in this particular occasion. There were about 18 months of ministry already happening where Jesus was preaching. And look at verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. That is Luke's sort of summary statement about the response that was occurring because of this prior 18 months of ministry. So after the temptation, Luke then fast-forwards past that 18 months of ministry to this incident here. And that year and a half was no small uh, set of circumstances. Amazing things happened during that 
year and a half. Amazing displays of power. And it's what made his popularity spread through all the surrounding district. In fact, John's Gospel says that after the temptation, Jesus then first went back to Bethany beyond the Jordan, to the place where John the Baptist was was dunking converts. And he spent some time there as the John the Baptist was being interrogated by the Pharisees as to who he was. And he said, I'm not the Christ. And he started pointing followers to Christ. A day after that, he saw Jesus and called him the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he called him the Son of God. A day later, John told two disciples to peel off and begin following Jesus. And the day after that, John's Gospel says that Jesus started heading to Galilee, but he found Philip and Nathaniel along the way. Three days after that, John's Gospel says he was up above Nazareth in Cana, where he performed his first miracle at a wedding there. Then Jesus settled in Capernaum with his family and the few disciples he'd had so far. Then he goes back down to Jerusalem during this 18-month period, back down to the Passover He's full of zeal for the honor of God. He comes into the temple, and as you know, he wreaks havoc on the, on the racketeering business that had taken place on the Temple Mount. And when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, it says in John 2, 23, that many believed in his name, observing the signs that he was doing. So Jesus was doing miracles during this 18-month period, and people were believing in him. Clearly, his power and his claims were becoming the hottest topic around the surrounding district. His fame was already starting to offend the religious leaders. Some were softening because you remember back when he was in that Passover season, prior to arriving in Nazareth in his next ministry in Galilee, he actually met with one of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, recorded in John 3. And then he went back into the wilderness of Judea even after meeting with Nicodemus, and he went where John was baptizing, and he started to, his Jesus' disciples started baptizing for people to follow Jesus as the Messiah, and John began to point more disciples to him. And then in John 4, in John's Gospel, chapter 4, it says, as soon as Jesus knew that the Pharisees were aware that John's disciples were now shifting to Jesus, their loyalties were shifting. As soon as Jesus knew the Pharisees knew that, he started heading back to Galilee. Why? Because... Most likely, the Pharisees were already interrogating John the Baptist, and he was about to be arrested and have his head lopped off. And so Jesus is heading back into Galilee because he does not want some military uprising to come and assault him because the Pharisees saw the shift of the disciples over to Jesus. Listen, Jesus had the power. Jesus was the one with the miraculous power. If the disciples of John the Baptist... If there were that numerous a number of them and they were shifting their loyalties to Jesus and Jesus had all this power, Jesus was concerned that Jerusalem would send a delegation of military might to arrest him right then. And his time had not yet come. So what did he do on the way back to Galilee? John's Gospel records that he went through Samaria. He met the woman at the well. And more outcasts in the Gentile country of Samaria were saved. And so it seems that he's headed back to Galilee here and he's doing miracles and teaching along the way and there are people getting saved and his and word of this is spreading. In fact, when he gets back into the Galilean area, he, uh, he goes to um, Cana and then an official, an official son 
in Capernaum, where Jesus had settled and set up residence, was sick. And so that, that official asked Jesus to heal his son. And, of course, you remember Jesus does while the official's on his way back. He knows it's the exact hour. And in John 4, you see that recorded. So Luke skips all of that and brings us fast forward to this narrative here. Now, Luke doesn't include all that other ministry because he's giving scenes that highlight the Gent- to the Gentile readers that the Jewish leaders in the synagogues were quick to reject the Messiah, but he was still reaching out to the Gentiles. That was Luke's amazing reality. Luke is a Gentile. He's writing largely to Gentiles. And he's giving scenes in Jesus' life where though the Jewish leaders are rejecting the Messiah, hey, the Gentiles are still being reached out to by Jesus, and he's saving many of them. And so I want to read this narrative and then we'll just walk through it, uh, pulling out or picking out the wonderful expressions of this gospel ministry of Jesus. And what you're going to see is that you can't avoid the offense of the gospel and you're going to see why you can't avoid it. Beginning in verse 13, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. The book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you, in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months. When a great famine came over all the land, and yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things, and they got up. And drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went his way. Wow. (laughs) Some worship service. What we notice first here is his wide appeal. He comes in and the the appeal is at least at this point wide. In other words, the offense hasn't really hit yet. The message hasn't become clear. People are interested in the superficial things people are always interested in. When he comes in, he's being praised by all, verse 15 says. 
The Gentiles were coming to him in great numbers, but even in his teaching in the synagogues, it was initially highly honored. That's the terminology here, praised by all. It is the term for highly esteemed, or literally the term could be translated glorified. His teaching was uh, exalted, elevated, made much of. It was esteemed, highly honored, even in the synagogues. And you can imagine why. People, again, are interested, at least initially, in the superficial things. This guy's a perfect communicator. Who wouldn't want that? I know some of you right now are thinking, I wish he were here. Jesus is the perfect communicator. Flawless. His logic is uncontestable. His reasoning through the implications of the truth was accurate. Always down to the heart level. Always getting at the issues no one else sees. I mean, that would have captivated the hearers. It was so full of genuine passion. It was so clear and heart-stirring. It was beyond what they ever had on a weekly basis. It was light years beyond the typical rabbi in town who, who droned on about minutia. And... After all, Jesus had displays of awesome power that they wanted to witness, so everybody came. Always interested in, in some sort of display for our own interests. Some sort of display that human beings can evaluate as to whether it is worthy of their attention or not. There wasn't a question he couldn't thoroughly put to rest, so they wanted to see him joust with some of the leadership. They'd already heard that. Man, did you see how he put down the, the guys over here, their silly reasoning, and then the lawyers faced off with him, and he just silenced them in front of the crowd. The guy is absolutely amazing. We want to see this guy. We want to hear him. He had no rivals to his vast knowledge of the Old Testament. And in all of that instruction, he was the perfect Consummate shepherd's heart for people's needs. They could see the compassion in his eyes. It's no surprise he was praised by all. His, his appeal was wide. And he had an initial hometown welcome that was pretty nice. From his wide appeal, you get to the initial hometown welcome. Notice, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath, stood up to read. What does that mean? They asked him to read. They knew there was trouble with some. The word had already reached in a year and a half of what he'd done down in Jerusalem and how he went into the temple and zeal for the house of God had consumed him. And there were religious leaders all over the Galilean regions as well as Judea who were talking about some of the conflict that Jesus was Stirring up. But notice here, he stood up to read, and the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Uh, this is Luke's way of saying, look, he was having an initial welcome, even being chosen to be the, the reader. By the way, it was Jesus' habit. The habit of his upbringing, the habit of his adult life, it says here. That he was going to the synagogue on the Sabbath. In the synagogue, they... Um, Synagogue worship actually wasn't around during the tabernacle or temple days of Old Testament Israel. What happened is when Babylon crushed Israel and took them into exile in 586 B.C., uh, any time there was 
an, an opportunity to gather and have instruction and catechization they, uh, of the doctrines and the truths of the Old Testament, they developed these little groups and they were formed into synagogues and then down through the history, more and more of them, they were the small group gatherings really outside of temple worship. They sang psalms, they, uh, they recited Old Testament uh, law, they recited the Shema, the Shemana Esra, uh, the Our Lord, Our Lord is one, the Lord our God is, is one God, and um, you shall walk by the way teaching these things to your children. This was all a part of what was read in the synagogue. They worshipped together. They prayed together. They read scriptures. They were taught the meaning and application of the truth. They were encouraged in the fellowship. They were challenged to remain faithful to God. And at the time of the reading, the synagogue official retrieved the particular scroll for that reading. Notice Jesus is chosen to be the reader. He stood up to read. So at some point he was asked, prior to the service beginning, to be the actual reader and do the exposition for that Sabbath. Otherwise he wouldn't have stood up at the time at that moment in the service. Synagogue officials had obviously heard that Jesus was intending to visit his hometown, and they planned to give him the honor and give him the floor on that particular Sabbath. And you can imagine the anticipation in the place. Whatever he was going to do, was there going to be some, some word uh, from their hometown boy that would finally put the bad reputation of Nazareth to, to rest? They had a bad reputation. John one forty six. when Jesus met Nathaniel, or, or when Jesus was about to meet Nathaniel, Nathaniel heard Jesus was here and from Nazareth, and he said, can anything good come out of that place? So maybe they're in the temple, or, or they're in the synagogue, anticipating that Jesus is going to completely redo their reputation. This is their hometown boy. Maybe he's going to do something prominent. Or maybe they were going to hear some new teaching that would hold the imagination of the entire countryside and everyone would be spellbound. And it was our guy, the son of Nazareth. Or maybe some miracle. Notice verse 17, Isaiah was the prophetic reading for that Sabbath. Some historians tell us that there weren't exact passages chosen necessarily, but particular books were marked out. We don't know for sure in history whether Isaiah 61 was the actual marked reading for the day, although in the providence of God, that's precisely what God wanted his son Jesus to do on that day. But we do know Isaiah was the prophet that was handed to him, and so it must have been pre-selected. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written. So he unrolls the scroll to the place we know today as chapter 61. There were no chapter and and verse sort of divisions back then. You had to be familiar enough with the material to know where these texts were in the course of a prophetic book. So they handed him Isaiah. He knew how far to go as he unrolled it to the place he wanted to read. Of course, from his childhood, he was exposed to the Old Testament, so he knew probably read it many, many times. He would have spent years reading it and studying it and meditating on it. Even by the age of 12, he was already beginning to understand that the prophets were speaking of him, Luke's gospel tells us. And he read almost all of verses 1 and 2. He read all of verse 1 and left out one phrase of verse 2. Notice verse 18. This is what Jesus read in the worship service. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me 
Because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And then he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Not only has he been chosen to be the reader, but this guy, this rabbi, is now claiming to be the ruler. God's ruler. God's anointed ruler. God's messianic ruler. Listen, beloved, never before in any service in that synagogue in Nazareth had an introduction to a sermon started like that. Never. And I want you to just get your mind around this for a minute. The Messiah himself opened a prophet's writings which were about himself. And the Messiah himself read the passage about his own coming. And the Messiah himself read it to people who were longing for the return of the Messiah. And then... The Messiah himself closed the scroll of the prophet's words. He sat down and the Messiah began to preach the sermon to those people. He told them that that very Sabbath, in their service, during that sermon, they were right in the middle of the fulfillment of the promise from Isaiah in that passage. I've never preached a sermon like that. No other human being has ever preached a sermon like that. I always preach about Jesus. I always talk about Christ. I always try to do an exposition of a passage that tells you about Jesus. If you ever come away imagining that preachers are about themselves, get away from that guy. We preach about Jesus. On that day, it was all about him. He was... The topic, he was the subject, and he was the preacher preaching the subject. Jesus knew this was a messianic passage, so did everyone sitting there. It is a passage that speaks about Messiah's coming. Messiah is anointed by God in this passage. He would have the spirit of wisdom, counsel, strength, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. Isaiah the prophet said in chapter 11, verse 1, he would come to preach good news to These conditions, the people in these conditions, notice the spiritually impoverished, preaching the gospel to the poor. He doesn't mean people with no money. Of course people with no money are going to hear the gospel. He means people spiritually impoverished. And he will announce release to the captives. That is to say people who are spiritually imprisoned in their sin, in their bondage. He will give spiritual sight to those in spiritual darkness. And he'll free those who are oppressed. What does that mean? He'll give true freedom to those who are burdened and oppressed by the effects and misery of sin. Of course, it's amazing to me that verse 22 is recorded here. Notice, and all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? 
this is staggering to me because this indicates that by the time Jesus arrived, by the time the Messiah himself is preaching the Messianic sermon in their synagogue from his hometown, I mean, this is a big moment. By the time Jesus does this, they had reinterpreted Isaiah 61. They had reinterpreted all the prophetic and messianic passages. And they interpreted them to mean that Jesus would come in, crush the enemies of national Israel, that he would come in and bring back the material wealth of the nation, take them out of Roman exile, out of Roman oppression, out of the economic taxation. So he would come as a political leader and a military leader, and he would crush the enemies of national Israel, bring back their material wealth, heal everyone's physical diseases. In other words, he'd take care of the the diseases that had swept through the land. And he would throw off all the oppression of any foreign people. He'd set them up in their kingdom. There'd be no more foreign oppression from any other enemy. By the way, Jesus did leave out the last line of Isaiah 61, verse 2. Not only did verse 2 say he's here to declare the favorable year of the Lord... But then Isaiah 61 verse 2 says, And the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. So you have both the favorable year of the Lord upon sinners in Isaiah 61, and you also have a reference to the eschatological end times judgment that will come, the day of utter vengeance. Clearly God enacted smaller occasions of vengeance upon Israel's enemies. Clearly he brought Israel out of their unbelief at occasions. But all that was pointing to the ultimate one who would be able to save their heart. To change their heart. Their spiritual impoverishment. And those who were reading, who who heard this reading, were so taken with Jesus that they didn't notice even the omission of that chief point of anticipation of the Messiah, vengeance on Israel's enemies. They could have highlighted that. They could have said, hey, wait a minute, you left out our favorite line, that the Messiah is going to come and crush everyone right now. At least that was their interpretation. And it's amazing. He's claiming to be the ruler in that very moment, and they're cherishing him as this resident hometown guy. Today, they found his words to be the greatest comfort to their human longings. They were all speaking well of him, wondering at gracious words, falling from his lips, saying, is this not Joseph's son? Man, they've heard of Jesus' power. They hadn't witnessed it yet. They'd heard he could heal diseases and cast out demons and confound the toughest interrogators. And they're hearing this and saying, wait a minute, is he telling us that Messiah is here today in this room, ready to bring the favorable year of the Lord? Can that really be? This is Joseph's kid. And so already, they're starting to put this thing to the test. Already they're saying, wait a minute, how can that be? He should come through Jerusalem. How can that be? He should come through the Jewish leaders. How could that be? He should be acknowledging the theological wealth and exaltation of those down in Jerusalem and then throughout the land. He shouldn't be coming here talking about the favorable year of the Lord coming today right now through this little synagogue in Nazareth, this is Joseph's kid. Is he saying this is a reference to him? How can he be saying that? That would mean, shock, he's the Messiah. 
They're starting to put it on trial. And so Jesus responds to that with a provocative exposition. We see his wider appeal, his initial welcome, and now we see his provocative exposition. Look at this, verse 23. He said to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your own hometown. Remember last time uh, he had been in Capernaum just a little bit before? He healed the official's son, the nobleman's son. Hey, we heard that happened in Capernaum. You're here in your hometown. Surely we're going to get better miracles than Capernaum. We know you settled there, but this is the place where you ought to be proving your credentials. What's going on in their heart? Here's why the gospel is offensive to them. Here's why it's offensive. First of all, when the gospel of Jesus Christ calls you to acknowledge Him as, as your greatest need, Him as your only answer, rather than yourself, you're, the first response of someone who is offended at that automatically says, listen, I am equal with you. You're just Joseph's son. You're just a man. You heard people say that? Oh, Jesus was just a man. That's a person who is saying in their heart, in their offense at the gospel, look, I'm equal with you. You're equal with me. You're no better than me. I can achieve what you've achieved. I can accomplish before God what you've accomplished. I'm as righteous as you if I want to be. I can make this on my own. Jesus says, no doubt you're going to say to me, physician, heal yourself. He's saying to them, you're going to say, I'm equal. You're going to say, I'm not a savior. You're going to say that I need the same healing you do. That's what you're going to say. The second thing is that they're going to put his credentials on trial. They're going to demand proof. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your own hometown as well. Notice what Jesus says. Truly, I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his own hometown. Why is that? Why is no prophet welcome in his own hometown? Jesus said it again in Matthew 13, 57 and John 4, 44. Why is this a truth that everybody is aware of? I'll tell you why. Because look, I know how that guy grew up. And although they had no accusation of Jesus' life, he never, he never sinned even as a young person. They're just saying, look, he, he made tables. I can make tables. You know, he went to the synagogue and memorized scripture. I memorized scripture. He performed the, the sacrifices and services that the law required. Well, so did I. He was religious. I was religious. And you know what? I don't know where he was when he was by himself. I don't know what he's doing, but he certainly, he certainly couldn't have had some special relationship with God. I have a special relationship with God. And if I have a minimal relationship with God, well, certainly there's no human being that can accomplish more than than I can. No prophet's welcome in his own hometown because they saw him grow up. That was what was wrong in their offense to the gospel. They're saying, Jesus is equal with me. He's not my savior. He's, a, he's just my homeboy, a chum. A childhood chum. And if he is something that's worthy of my attention, he is going to have to prove it exactly what happens, doesn't it? It's exactly what happens when people hear the gospel. That's why Jesus would say to the, to the crowd, blessed is he who doesn't take offense at me. 
Blessed is he who doesn't take offense at me. Pride and jealousy keep people from the gospel. The pride of saying, I am not the sinner you think I am. I do not have need of what you're saying I need. Listen, you can foolishly try to remove that alienation, but it is impossible. Unless God, through your gospel proclamation, softens and convicts, and unless the circumstances of that person's sinful heart before a holy God demonstrate that softness, there isn't anything you can do to remove the offense. It is intrinsic. You could be... You could try the, the nicest approach. You could, you could try to have all your sermons, uh, you know, just completely skip across the surface of the issues of people's lives. You could avoid texts of Scripture that are difficult. You could make your ministry oh-so-seeker-oriented. You could give people what they like, help people to be attracted to things on the surface so they'll stay and you could try to convince them that what you offer is just sort of the good side of things but never any indictment on the human heart. You could do that. Pragmatism of American evangelicalism has proven that is nonsense. It doesn't do anything except perhaps convince people that they are in a relationship with God that's right when it's not grabbing people comfortably by the hands and taking them to hell with you. That's all that is. See, but Jesus was so tender and compassionate. Really? How about these two illustrations in his sermon? How about these two illustrations? He sees what they're doing. He sees that they're just listening to the gracious words falling from his lips. And so he has to say, hey, you're going to tell me that you're an equal with me. Hey, physician, heal yourself. you got just as much problems as we do. You're no better than us. You're just Joseph's son. And I'm also telling you, Jesus says, that a prophet doesn't have any honor in his own hometown. Israel had proven that. That was indisputable. When Jesus said it, they knew exactly what he was beginning to say. This is his hometown, This is where he's at in their synagogue and he's beginning to imply you guys are not honoring me the way that you're called by this text to honor me. Wow. No longer are they marveling at the gracious words that fall from his lips. You think Jesus is done? Oh no, he's not done. Here it is. I say to you in truth, verse 25, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months when a great famine came over all the land and yet Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Man, this stabs, this stings. First Kings 17 1 Kings 17, verse 12 and verse 24 indicate what happened. You remember the evil, wicked king of Israel, Ahab, and the Gentile wife Jezebel, and they had so dishonored God and involved all of God's people in Baal worship that God sent a famine, and it was a serious drought, and it choked the life out of those people. They were dying. They were miserable. They had nothing. 
no substance, no crops, no heritage, no generation, no joy. And it was punishment. And when the prophet was sent to bring comfort, words of comfort and powerful miracles of comfort, when he was brought, you know where he went? He went to a Gentile place, Zarephath, a widow of Zarephath. And it was a woman, an outcast from Sidon. Sidon was a pagan culture. Jesus is saying, look, when you take offense at God's servant, at God's message, when you take offense at the gospel and truth of God, he reaches out to those with soft hearts and he closes you out. He closes you out. Illustration number two, another great prophet in Israel, Elisha, verse 27 And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Uh, This this is probably an even more stinging illustration because not only was a leper considered judged by God and therefore lost forever, Uh, The disease was considered a sign of God's hand of judgment, as often it had been, though he always said so. The disease itself was a result of sin, and Gentile nations had just as much of those diseases in their nations as Israel sometimes did in its history. But not only was leprosy considered off-limits in terms of God's grace, but also this is a Syrian, naming the Syrian, This is grace brought to a people so hated, so much the enemy of God and his people. And this is a leper considered under the judgment of God from pagan Syria. And it is he to whom Elisha went and grace from God was reaching out. So here is Jesus' provocative exposition. Today... This passage is fulfilled in your hearing. There are spiritually poor people, spiritually impoverished, spiritually imprisoned people, spiritually oppressed and miserable people, and if they will soften their hearts and not be offended at me, the grace of God will come. But you, no doubt, you're sitting there and you are saying to yourself, are you really anything more than Joseph's son? Surely you're not my savior. You can't be the Messiah. He says, you're going to say to me, physician, heal yourself. Prophets without honor in his own hometown. Wow, what are you saying? Are you saying that because this is your hometown and you're a prophet, we're supposed to esteem you out of Isaiah 61? That would mean you're the Messiah. I don't think so. In fact, Capernaum had a display of miraculous power. You better start doing some miracles here, buddy. You need to satisfy me before I ever consider the grace you offer. Wow. Listen, until someone is softened in their heart, as they're taking offense at Jesus, there is nothing you can do but speak truth in the love of Christ and wait. Speak truth in the very love of Christ and wait. 
That's what you do. If you try to get in there and, and eliminate that offense from human means, you will accomplish nothing because the offense is intrinsic. I'll tell you what, this group was anticipating Jesus coming, heard about his miracles. Guys, he's coming into town. He's coming to our synagogue, the synagogue he grew up in. We all know him. Everybody knows Joseph's son who grew up here. Everybody knows how faithful he was to the synagogue. Everybody knows that 18 months we've been hearing that things are happening all around Jerusalem. In fact, a lot of the Gentiles went down for the festivals and saw some of the signs. And they must have come back to Nazareth and to the synagogue saying, Hey, he did some amazing things down there. And they're anticipating that Sabbath day. And they're gathered. And they're, they are abuzz. Their heart is in their throat. They're thumping, waiting for some miraculous display so that they can put Nazareth on the map and put themselves in an exalted position. And he comes in, chosen to read. He reads the passage, claims that this is about him and it is fulfilled today right where you're seated. And they were wondering the gracious words falling from his lips, but then they heard something in there and they started to question, wait a minute, isn't this just the son of Joseph? That can't be. And he knew right then what was happening in their hearts. They wanted self-exaltation. They wanted Jesus to look at them as already righteous, already having arrived. They wanted the esteem of the Messiah. They didn't want to esteem the Messiah. And by the time he finished his two illustrations, it was all out for this guy. Notice what they do. They got up. Verse 28, they were filled with rage as they heard these things. That's the verbal idea that as they were listening to it, they're starting to boil. The blood is starting to boil and they're touching each other and grabbing each other and it's starting to stir. And they got up. I mean, that is a collective mob that's angry and they know what each other wants to do. There's nobody in there saying, you know, I'd like to kill that guy, but I wonder what anyone else would think. No, there's none of that. This guy has called all of us unbelievers. And he's saying he is our savior. They got up in a mob and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill. You know, when you go to Nazareth today, we were just there recently and there, there are these craggy areas and there are traditional spots where the synagogue is believed to have been. And, um, and now they have a little section that they've left in the old flavor of first century, uh, just with the kind of life that they lived there. So you kind of go to that section, you get a feel for it. But there are craggy sections around there and cliff areas and everybody sort of marks out where they think the spot might have been. It doesn't really matter. All of it would have been life-threatening. And they went out of the synagogue, dragging him to the top of this hill that was at the center. They had one... One motive, to throw him down the cliff. They were going to murder him right there in his hometown after his first sermon in the synagogue. Could, could anybody standing around remove the offense? Could Jesus remove the offense? No. Why? Because until 
you come to the place where you accept that you're not an equal with Christ, but you're actually condemned by Christ. Until you accept that he is the only Messiah, the only Savior, the one who can bring the spiritually poor people to spiritual riches. Until you accept that you're blind. Until you accept that you are oppressed by your own sin. Until you accept that you are in bondage and in prison spiritually. Until you accept that, you won't be blessed. Because you take offense at Christ. In the Sermon on the Mount, blessed is He. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who see their moral bankruptcy. That was His point. You want joy? You've got to see your moral bankruptcy. They would have none of it. <laughs> and they took Him up to a cliff to kill Him. He had a narrow escape. Verse 30. Passing through their midst. He went his way. You know, when I read that verse, I think, Luke, couldn't you have told us a little more than that? I mean, my, my mind just can't leave it at that. Oh, passing through their midst, he went his way. I mean, it may be that if you ask Luke that when you get to heaven, he might say, why would I want to give you more? Doesn't that just thrill you that, oh, there they were getting ready to throw them off. And Where'd he go? To which we might have to respond, okay, 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 I get it. It wasn't his time. Jesus knew it wasn't his time. But it was time to preach a sermon like that. It was time to provoke their hearts. This was his hometown. By the way, there's no record that he ever went back there to preach another sermon. That was it. The hatred was sealed. The hatred for him was sealed. He brought the gospel. Probably some from Nazareth, his hometown, came to Christ, certainly his family members, his brothers later, the Gospels say, came to Christ. And I'll tell you, you cannot remove the offense of the Gospel. Why? Because you're telling people you're spiritually poor. You're morally bankrupt. And you're in bondage to your sin. And you're oppressed by your own doing. It's your guilt and the only way to solve that is the Messiah, the hope of Israel, the hope of the nations, the one who came to proclaim that he would forgive you of your sin. He would give you new eyesight. He would remove the shackles of your spiritual imprisonment. When you give the gospel to somebody and you see the alienation coming, you're tempted to back off and soften. You know what you need to do? Give a couple of illustrations. Tell them about Elijah and Elisha. Tell them about Zacchaeus and the fact that God saved an outcast tax gatherer and that the Jews in Luke 19 began to grumble. They began to grumble. Give them illustrations from your own life. How many years did you grumble at the gospel because you would not acknowledge that you were spiritually poor? You thought you were equal with Jesus. You thought you could get to God on your own. You would say to Jesus before you came to Christ, Physician, heal yourself. I'm fine. Instead of that day when you came to him and said, No, Lord, you, you are the great physician. Remember what Jesus said in Luke 5, 31? It is not those who are well who need a physician, 
But those who are sick, that's what you tell them. Verse 32, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. How many people are righteous? None of us. Isaiah 64, 6, all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. It's over before you're taking even a breath. You don't have any righteousness. But Jesus has not come to call people who think they're righteous. He's come to call sinners to repentance. And he says in John's gospel, to those who come to me, all those who come to me, I will not cast out. You can't remove the offense of the gospel, beloved. Jesus didn't do it, and you couldn't do it. In fact, they did eventually kill him. They didn't throw him off a cliff, but they trumped up charges, dragged him before a kangaroo court, and hung him on a cross. And that was Jesus' purpose. You know why Jesus didn't let himself get thrown off the cliff then? So that you and I could have salvation now. If he'd let him throw him off a cliff, then he wouldn't be the cursed one who hung on a tree. He wouldn't have atoned for sin by the shedding of his blood as a sacrifice in the way that the Old Testament prophesied. Do not try humanly to remove the offense of the gospel. Let God remove it in Christ. Amen. Lord, thank you. Thank you that when you preach this amazing, provocative, glorious message, thank you that on that day in your providence, it was in your hometown, your home synagogue, to a lot of the people you grew up with, and you rolled out such a precious message to them. And you didn't come in the synagogue pronouncing judgment, but you actually offered yourself. You read the passage first when you could have already looked into the hearts and seen the offense that was coming. And thank you as well that you boldly proclaimed your own messianic credentials. Nobody needed to doubt it. And when you saw people putting your reputation and credentials on trial, you knew what that meant, that you were without honor in your own hometown, that pride and jealousy and self-righteousness was hindering them from seeing the truth and they were taking offense at you. Therefore, they were not going to be blessed with the truth. And so in one last moment of grace, you pointed them to their Old Testament prophets. And in grace, you warned them that God does not save the self-righteous, but he calls sinners to repent. Lord, we thank you that you went from that occasion to the cross for our sin. Help us as a church never to fall into the trap of trying to humanly remove some offense, but to speak the truth in love and to wait on you, pray for people, to show them the power of your transformed life by the Spirit's work accomplished in us. And may we never fear just speaking the truth in love and let you polarize hearts and expose where men are. We thank you for the passage that we're in. If there's somebody here today who's offended and has been offended, 
and they're not experiencing the blessedness of forgiveness, Lord, I pray that, that we've taken them into the Nazarene synagogue. We've taken them there to that place in this narrative. And they've seen the offense that hard hearts have in their experience. And maybe, Lord, you would use that by your grace to soften a heart in our midst today. We pray it in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.